For since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for, human, for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their wreckness while living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to the human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regarding to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and be of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace is in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, Jim. Sweetie, can you bring me that water, please? Morning, everyone. Morning, people at home. Trust you nice and warm under your blankets. <coughs> it is a bit cool this morning, isn't it? Winter's nearly here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together. And I pray that your words from Peter, through Peter, uh, will be your words to us this morning. Help us to hear familiar truth, see new truth, and in all things, Lord, find application to our life that we might be doers of your word and not simply hearers. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Living in the shadow of eternity. Can you see that over there? Is that okay? I hope that's okay. Uh, in this passage, it begins with the word, therefore, as we'll come to in a moment. Peter is taking us back to his previous paragraph, which is now for us about a month ago, in which he spoke about that Christ died for us in order to bring us to God. Christ died for us to reconcile us to God. Um, so that we could walk with him and live with him. This is wonky, and I'm a little bit wonky this morning too. That's better. Um, so we've been reconciled to God in order that we might... Um, walk with him and in the process of doing that we live a different life we are now being changed we are different different to what we used to be and different to those now around us to various degrees so the apostle 
is writing to this group of Christians and telling them how to live in this world, both personally, but he'll also talk about congregationally, and next week he'll go on about talking about in the world. Christ died for us in order to bring us to God, therefore, he says. There are four, I think, key points that I want to give you this morning. This is the first one, it's verses 1 to 3. We need to have, as we follow Jesus, a militant attitude towards sin, a militant attitude. Um, and the, the attitude towards, militant attitude towards sin is our sin. Not necessarily other people's sins, but our sin. We are doing battle with our sin. That's what Apostle Peter says in verse 1, when he says, Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves. That's the military concept. He's talking about a soldier who gets up and who gets dressed ready for battle. Puts on the uniform, puts on the equipment, takes his weapons. And our attitude... Our beliefs, our thinking, our worldview is likewise a weapon as we live in the shadow of eternity, as we live in this fallen world. So arm yourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had against sin, and he dealt with sin, because whoever suffers in his body has finished with sin. Arm yourself. As I said, our attitudes and our beliefs are our weapons. If, we have, if we're weak in that area, or wrong... That'll lead to our defeat. So we need to equip ourselves to arm ourselves. Our outlook will determine the outcome. Arm yourselves, particularly against your own sin. This implies, of course, to remind you that Christianity is a war and some discipline is required. We are in a spiritual battle and it does mean that we will be shot at by the evil one. We will be attacked. You will be tempted and you will be tested arm yourself. You ever been to a restaurant um, which is dark, where it's low light? When you walk out of sunlight into that, it's very hard to see initially. You almost lead like a miner's helmet to find your table. But after you've been sitting there for a while, what happens? Your eyes adjust to the darkness. It doesn't take long to adjust to the darkness, if you understand my point. It's very easy for us to compromise and to condone sin in us that's where peter is writing to writing and saying um, we need to not go easy on ourselves we need to do battle with sin just like the put the frog in the cold pot of water and turn it up so he'll adjust to the temperature around him we need to be on guard against doing exactly that we need to have a militant attitude towards sin our sin because whoever suffers in the body now peter is not saying that if you suffer anything then you're done with sin that's not what he means what he's talking about is because we are committed to jesus and that results in suffering persecution or whatever uh, because of the suffering which is coming to us because of our faith that's an indication that we have done we're done with sin do you understand he's wanting us to finish with sin not finish as in uh, we are perfect, we're sinless, but rather finish with sin as in, I don't want that anymore, I'm taking that out of my life. I went and saw my physical trainer, who happens to be here this morning, this week, and I'm starting again, and he gave me a diet, I thought I had a good diet, but now there are things that I have to take out of my life. Do you know you can't have chocolate? Pray for me. Sugar? you know that? No sugar in tea anymore. And I barely can have milk. 
It was only his kindness and graciousness that I'm allowed to have, Bill. A little bit. (laughs) That's what Peter's attitude towards sin. Be finished with it. Don't compromise, don't condone it. Be, arm yourself militantly against sin in you. Your sinful attitude, your sinful conduct and so on. Um, And as a result, people who have made the commitment to follow Jesus and are prepared to be persecuted for it, to suffer in the body for it, not only indicates they've got the right attitude towards sin, but as a result, they will live, they won't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather they'll live it for the will of God. A militant attitude towards sin will result in us living the rest of our lives, the days that we have, because Peter will go on to say in verse 3, for you've already had enough time in the past to do the evil desires, the sins, you spent enough time doing that. Now focus on living for God and doing God's will. That's pretty much the point of what he's saying. Um, We need to invest the rest of our time in doing God's will. That's a choice. If not investing our time in doing God's will, then we are wasting our time in giving in to sin and to the world and the influences around us. And you will live with regret. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that when we appear before God for our evaluation as followers of the Lord Jesus, for those of us who have compromised, who have condoned sin in our life, that haven't been fully obedient, we will suffer loss. 1 Corinthians 3.10. We will suffer loss of what? Something. Loss of reward. J.C. Ryle used to say, Bishop J.C. Ryle last century used to say, century before, uh, when we get to glory and we see him, then we all, our response will be, why didn't I serve him more? Why didn't I do more? That's exactly what Peter is saying. Make the choice here and now. You've had enough time doing it your way. Now commit yourself wholeheartedly, passionately, to follow Jesus and to be fully obedient with him, to him. Um, doing the will of God is not a burden, John tells us, but rather it's a delight. And so we are to resist sin and relish the will of God. The best of your time is when you spend the rest of your time investing your time in doing God's will. That's a good sentence, isn't it? The best of your time is when you spend the rest of your time to invest your time in doing God's will. Let this be our lifelong pursuit. If you have a look at the list of the sins that Peter has there, we probably won't identify some for most of us with any of them. For some of you, it might be one or it might be a couple of them or whatever. But for a first century church, first century world, that's a very typical list. That's particularly how they used to worship. And all sorts of both sexual but also inappropriate lusts, getting drunk, having orgies, loud parties, carousing and detestable idolatry. They all go together. That was their worship experience. And when you become a follower of Jesus, you gave that up, which is what leads to the next point. We are to have a compassionate attitude towards people who are lost. A militant attitude against sin in our own life, but a compassionate attitude towards others who are still caught in the grip of sin. Not to judge them, but to love them until they become likewise a follower of the Lord Jesus. Peter says to us in verse 4, That's why they are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living. Going to the temple, sleeping with temple prostitutes, getting drunk, eating too much, 
misbehaving and having loud parties, not just in the temple, but also doing it domestically at home. They're surprised that you don't join them anymore. And it moves from surprise to eventually abuse. They'll start mocking you, they'll start attacking you, they'll start judging you. They'll um, say all sorts of things against you and sometimes that can become physical because you, by your lifestyle, will be a confrontation to them. Even though you don't mean it to be, you can't stop it. That's what Jesus did wherever he went. So that's what will happen to us. As we passionately follow Jesus, we will live and be different to the world around us. And we can expect that they'll abuse us. So going back to verse 1, have a militant attitude against sin, being aware of the consequences, that if I devote myself to following Jesus, then people are going to react and sometimes nastily, both in what the things they say to you or the things they say behind your back about you or even the fact that they won't even talk to you, whichever response or reaction it is. But we are to have a compassionate attitude towards them because they don't have the last word. They too will have to give an account to God who is already ready to judge the living and the dead. The living and the dead means it's everybody, no one escapes. Everybody will appear before God for judgment. For Christians, for us who follow Jesus, we've already received the judgment through him. Our sins have been dealt with. But we appear before him for judgment in terms of evaluation of our works, of our obedience level, of our service for him. Non-believers will appear with him for an evaluation of their life, their deeds, good and bad, and received the just consequences of their sinful rebellion against him or their rejection of him. They don't have the last word. So don't go seeking your people human approval. Seek God's approval. Seek to live and to please him. For this reason, uh, this is a, a verse you've got to read carefully. Uh, for that's the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body, but live according to God in regards to the spirit. This verse is not saying that the gospel is preached to dead people. There's no second chance. There's not another chance when you die. That's not what Peter is saying. What he's saying is the gospel was preached to people when they were living and they responded to it. They became believers and since becoming believers, they have now died. This is the reason the gospel was preached to those who are now dead so that they might while they're judged by human standards, that's either they've been persecuted for their faith, they're martyrs for the faith, judged by human standards. That's probably what he means. Or it could mean that we're judged by human... Everybody dies because of Adam. Every person dies. Because you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are not delivered from physical death. Salvation is a process. We are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Three tenses of the New Testament... We are saved in spirit, justified, sinless, in spirit. Soul, being saved. That's our sanctification, we're working it out. That's where the battle is going on in our mind, hearts and wills. And then body, we will be saved in body. Spirit, soul and body. We are saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. So we will still physically die, but what happens to people... When they die, or if they're believers, they go live in the Spirit with God. What happens to unbelievers when they die? Well, they go to a place called Hades. 
as best we know. We're not given a lot of details, but we are given these sorts of indications. So the conclusion, therefore, is believe in the Lord Jesus, commit yourself to being a militant attitude against sin in your own life, a compassionate attitude to others who are still lost in sin in order to present the gospel to them. Being aware that they and we will appear before God for judgment. No one escapes. And so we ought to seek God's approval, not man's approval. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you, those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because of righteousness. As you live righteously in following Jesus, you will be persecuted. If you are persecuted, then that's a blessing, Jesus says. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are people when they insult you, persecute you, falsely say all sorts of evil things against you because of me. It's not because you're an obnoxious, irritating individual. It's because of Jesus. If you're being insulted and persecuted because you're an obnoxious person, well, there's no blessing in that. That's just a sinful, bad attitude, isn't it? And it's like, stop it. Have a militant attitude against that bad behaviour, that bad attitude. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. So, militant attitude against sin, our sin, a uh, compassionate attitude towards lost people, and number three, an expectant attitude towards our Saviour. An expectant attitude. The Apostle Peter says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. Not this sermon, but the end of all things is near. What does he mean? What he means is we are to live expectantly in the light of the truth that the next thing on God's program is the return of the Lord Jesus. The end of all things is next, is what he means. It's not here, but it's near. It's like we're right up against it. How long has it been? 2,000 years. That's by our timetable, not God's. In God's timetable, in God's program, schedule of events, Jesus Christ would come into the world die, be buried, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven and then return. That's the agenda, that's the program. We're living in this in-between zone. Little boy said to God once, God, what's a thousand years like to you? And God said, like a minute. Little boy thought, he said, God, what's a million dollars like to you? God said, it's like five cents. God, can I have a million dollars? God said, just a minute. God's timetable is different to ours. Time is, God is outside of time, isn't he? That's what, people, that's what the New Testament means. That's what Peter is saying. The end of all things is near. Jesus is coming. And what we need to do is to be alert, clear-minded, sober-thinking. Not to be distracted, not to get off balance and to become obsessed with studying the second coming or prophecy. So easy to do. Once I got fed up with not having a view or a clear view on what I thought the scriptures taught about it, so I devoted the whole year to reading as much as I could and reading the scriptures and particularly the book of Revelation. At the end of that period of time, it was probably a bit longer than a year, but at the end of that period of time, I read widely and took notes and I finally figured it out. I figured out the sequence. I figured out the schedule. And anything wrong with my conclusion 
is that three things must happen before Jesus comes back. I'll tell you what they are if you want to know. Three things must happen before Jesus comes back, but the problem is that when that happens, I know what year he's coming back. I thought. Only one thing wrong with that. No one knows the day or the hour. Yeah, but I know the year. I don't know the day, I don't know the time, but I know the year. Oh, come on. That's what some people actually argue. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And I've told you before, there was a book written back in 1987 which said 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Remember that book? It was a great seller, sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Did Jesus come in 1988? So he wrote an update, second edition. 89 reasons why Jesus will come in 1989. Sold hundreds of thousands of copies. No one knows the day or the hour. The end is near, but be clear-headed. Don't get distracted, don't get off balance and getting obsessed with all those sorts of things. Stay focused on living in the shadow of eternity. Do the things that God wants you to be doing. And if you live in the shadow of eternity, then four things will result, the Apostle Peter tells us. And this is our last point. This is not a good sentence, but I couldn't think of something. I had to start with the letter C and I had to have an S. Because I'm captured by this stuff. A congregational attitude towards the saints or a connecting attitude towards the saints might be better or something like that. What does Peter mean? Well, if you are living in the shadow of eternity, the end is near and you're aware of it and you're focused upon it, Jesus is coming. It's a bit like, you know, at work when it says the boss is coming, you better look busy. Well, Jesus is coming, so you better be busy. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober, so that why? So that you can pray. That's number one. First thing we are to do as we follow Jesus in terms of our congregation is to pray. To pray as a congregation, as our brother Don led us this morning. We are to pray together. But it's also praying not just for ourselves, but praying for the lost. For those having a compassionate attitude towards lost people so that they might come to know him. And on the window over here as we come from our day of prayer, there are, what is it, 200, 200 plus names of little statues of people, names on the window of people we're praying for to come to know Jesus. Pray this week, pray every day this week for Kids Club because there'll be 200 kids coming on site, not all of them know Jesus. There'll be 100 plus leaders on site and not all of them know Jesus. So pray and th then those messages are going to go to homes of people who don't know Jesus. Pray that God will work, that they'll come to an understanding of who Jesus is and what they should do about it. Pray. That's the first thing that we are to do. Pray because the time is short. Pray because prayer works. Prayer is powerful. We need to pray. Second thing we need to do. Above all, we are to love deeply. Pray fervently, passionately. Love deeply. This is a command. Above all. The word translated above all or deeply love each other deeply in some versions is translated fervently the word means quite literally it's the use of a horse who was at full gallop or of an athlete who is straining every muscle they've got to try as they're giving it everything they've got that's what it means love each other with everything you've got leave nothing in the tank give it and so it's not an emotion 
It's a dedicated will. It's a decision to treat others with grace, with kindness, niceness. Therefore, it's possible to love people, in that sense, you don't like. Because it's not emotion. It's not how you feel about them. It's the decision you'll make on how you will behave and act towards them. Either in terms of what you will give them, or what you will do for them, and how you will serve them. So it comes out of a sense of commitment. It's the right thing to do. Love one another, congregationally, deeply. Give it everything. And this love is two things. Number one, it's forgiving and it's practical. It's forgiving because love covers a multitude of sins. Let's pause here just for a second. The Apostle Peter is quoting the book of Proverbs, chapter 10. He's not suggesting that love condones or wrongly covers sin. He's not talking about that. What he's saying is that he's inviting us with an attitude of love towards others is not to spread others sin don't talk about it to others cover it keep it between you and them don't spread it aboard when somebody hurts us wrongs us does the wrong thing to us and if they're sitting next to you right now don't look at them just elbow them in the ribs or something you have a choice when somebody does something wrong to us we can either choose to overlook it, cover it. And if you would choose to go that way, it's because of an attitude to love, it's not worth worrying about. They spoke harshly, they acted inappropriately, or it wasn't fair what they did or said, whatever it was, it's an offence that you are able to cover. Basically, to ignore. And you pray for them. It means you don't come around later and dig it up later, because you've covered it. That's how you're going to deal with it. If you can't cover it, then you need to confront it. You've got to talk to them about it. What you said was wrong, what you said hurt, or whatever it was that you did, you need to confront it. The Apostle Peter is saying to us that we have to have a loving attitude towards one another, love each other deeply, and to, with that attitude, cover a whole lot of the little misdemeanors that go on in relationships. Evelyn Christensen, some of you will know that name, it's going back to the 1970s, she wrote a book, she wrote several books, but one book was called What Happens When Women Pray. You read that book? What Happens When Women Pray? Rhonda read it 40 years ago. And the thing I remember about the book, I didn't read it, but the thing I learnt from hearing others talk about it, was that Evelyn Christensen tells a story of Somebody had greatly hurt her and offended her and she started to pray for them. What she found when she was praying for them, that she changed. That she got over the hurt and her attitude towards that person changed. What happens when women pray? What happens when we pray? God changes us. Not only may change them, may not, but he'll change us and give us the grace or the strength or the courage or whatever to deal with it. So, Paul says 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5, Many people jump over this, but in that great chapter on defining what love is, 1 Corinthians 13, there's a whole list of positives and negatives. Love is and love is not. There is one thing, there are several good things in there, many good things in there. In verse 5, it says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. It covers them. Obliterates them. When you've forgiven them, it's washed away. 
It's what God does with our sin. And it's what we need to do with one another's sin. Hmm. Of course, I'm talking about minor little misdemeanors. When there is a, a bigger sin, a confrontive sin, then that has to go through the Matthew 18 processes where you confront them and look for repentance and assist them out of love, not out of revenge. So this love that we have is both uh, a forgiving love, but it's also a practical love. We are to practice hospitality, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Most of you know this. Offer hospitality. Seeing other people in need, helping them out. Quite literally, the word hospitality means lover of strangers. Lover of strangers. So in a congregation, there'll be people you don't know. Have an attitude of love towards them. In the New Testament times, especially, this would refer probably and most often to travelling missionaries or apostles or evangelists or prophets or even refugees, people who are persecuted in one town and they're fleeing. Offer hospitality to strangers, to the people who need it. This is what 3 John refers to in his letter. It's what the Didache, early teaching of the 12 apostles, talks about, an early Christian document written about AD 70, thereabouts. They actually have guidelines because this became known that this is what the church would do, that they will offer you hospitality. There were inns and motels available, but they were expensive. And people and these early Christian missionaries couldn't afford those sorts of things. The Didache comes up with some guidelines as this became widely known throughout the ancient world. That if a prophet comes and stays with you, if he stays one or two nights, that's fine. But if he stays three, he's a false prophet. If he asks for money or if he goes to a nicer looking house, he's a false prophet. They have these guidelines of, of course, people will rip you off. That's what happens, isn't it? We have a welfare account that we operate on your behalf to the needy people in our community and they come in, they make an appointment and we try to help them with food or petrol or bills or whatever way. We only have limited resources but we try to help them on your behalf. And sometimes you just think, oh, I don't think this is real. But what do you do? We're on the side of grace. So our attitude has been we'd rather get ripped off rather than drive a needy person away. And if it happens to a, when a person comes two or three times, then we say, just give it a rest for a while, you know, there are other people and, and so on. Anyway, offer hospitality to one another. And to do so without grumbling, without complaining. Oh, bother. We're having people over for a meal. Grumbling means to mumble under your breath, to whinge about it. Your heart's not in it. You've got the wrong attitude. Hmm. We should offer hospitality, knowing without grumbling, without a view to getting invited back. That should be the attitude too. Luke 4, that's exactly what Jesus teaches us. Offer hospitality to one another. Hospitality is the presentation, not just of your house for a meal, but it's your time, your resources. It's you helping others in need. That's what love is, and this is the congregational attitude we are to have towards one another. Love is both forgiving and it's practical. And I think in the end of this month, or coming up pretty soon, we're going, you'll hear more about it as it comes, but um, we're going to, you ever heard of uh, Tables of Eight? Hospitality Sunday? 
we're going to organise some of that so that we can cross-pollinate and get you to have meals together. I don't know how you're going to do, we'll do that in a COVID environment, but anyway, we're going to do it. We're going to try and do something. So for those of you who have tables where you can sit 1.5 metres apart, you'll be involved. Congregational attitude towards one another is not only that we pray, that we are loving and that we offer hospitality, but also means that we serve. We serve. And as you can see by the room this morning, there are many people using their abilities, their gifts and dedicating their time to serving. And the Lord bless you if you have participated by buying food or are buying food or baking food or whatever that is or helping distribute the food, that's another way of serving. Pray for Kids Club this week. Love results in serving one another. In a properly functioning community, each of us plays a part. Everybody is involved at some level. We participate. If you're a person and you're just new to Sunnybank and you're just attending, well, that's okay if you're new. But if you've been coming for a while and you're still just attending, that's all you're doing, well, you're welcome. But I want to say to you this morning, that's a whole new level of connectedness awaiting for you. Uh, there's a deeper experience of belonging when you choose to get involved, when you choose to participate. That's certainly what God wants us to do. And in verses 10 and 11, verse 11, the Apostle Peter, there are lots of, there are eight lists of gifts in the New Testament, and this is one of them. And Peter just simplifies it down to there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. He just simplifies it that way. There are those who have upfront gifts where they speak, whether it's preaching, teaching, prophecy, evangelism, or whether it's one-on-one -on -one encouragement or counselling, words of knowledge, whatever. Speaking gifts, prayer. Then there are serving gifts, which is not always, but most often than not, it's behind the scenes. It's demonstrating care for one another. It's helping others out. It's um, being practical. Both are necessary. And we should serve according to our giftedness because that's where... Um, that's how God has shaped us and that's where God's grace is and they are gifts which vary as it says here um, go back one each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve as faithful stewards something entrusted to you of God's grace in its various forms none of us have the same gifts we can have similar gifts but we have different gifts for the health of the body, to use Paul's analogy, or for the health of the congregation, to use Peter's. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. We know that. God has made sure that we have some way that we can participate, that we can connect in and join in. There's a variety of different gifts. We spoke about that. We're different to one another. Whatever gift you have, we are to use it for the common good. We use it to help others. That's what it's there for. And to bring glory to God. Some gifts are noticeable, most are unnoticeable, but all of them are helpful and necessary. So use them primarily so that God can be glorified. In all things, He might be glorified through Jesus Christ. If you're not using your gift, you're not only not connecting in the way that God would like you to do, and you'll enjoy the experience, you're not only not helping brothers and sisters, but you're not bringing glory to God. That's the consequences of someone who is not serving, not giving. And of course, I should say this, 
It's both inside and outside the church. It's not just inside the church and it's not just outside the church. It's both, in and out, in the context of wherever you are following the Lord Jesus. Uh, verse 10 spoke about grace in its various forms and it's, it means quite literally in its many coloured forms. As God's grace comes through somebody, it's going to come out green to use colours. Somebody else is going to come out yellow. Somebody else is going to come out blue. Somebody else is going to come out polka dot, whatever. It's in those rainbow colours, this variety of abilities and giftedness. And there is something else I should just say this before I draw this to a conclusion. We should all use our gifts, whatever their gifts are. And if you don't know what they are, then ask and we can help you discover what your gifts are. And most of you don't have one gift. You probably have two or three at least. You'll have one main gift and a couple of minor gifts or that's normal for most people. All of us have a gift that we should be serving, but all of us have responsibilities that are commands for us to do. For instance... Be hospitable to one another is a command. All of us have the responsibility to be hospitable. But some people, though the New Testament never says so, but some people just have a gift for it. They're just very hospitable. They do it easy. Some, it's a command for all of us to be witnesses, to share the gospel with people according to, when they ask us questions or according to the situation and need. Some people are gifted evangelists. Don't make the mistake... If you're serving in the area of your gift, of projecting your gift onto others, this is easy. I like doing this, and if I can do this, you can do this. Uh -uh. If it's your gift, that's why. Use your gift, but don't neglect the commands either. Okay, I hope that's balanced for you. Which is the most important gift? Well, obviously, preaching is the most important gift. <laughs> They're all important. Preaching is no more important than worship leading. No more important than the sound operator. In fact, if we didn't have a sound operator, you'd be sitting down here because you wouldn't be hearing me down there. Necessary. Somebody set up the building for you to sit in this morning. Everybody's necessary. When Ronald Reagan became president and he got shot, he was in hospital and he was out of action for quite a while. The country didn't miss a beat, kept going. In the city of Philadelphia, the garbage collectors went on strike for three weeks, wanted more money. The city ground to a halt. Who's more important? The President of the United States and the garbage collectors of Philadelphia. <laughs> well, of course, the garbage collectors. Everybody's necessary. Every part is important. You can't neglect it. So, I don't want to make you feel guilty, but I do want to encourage you to consider your gifts and your abilities and how you can step up. Here is the conclusion before I run through my summary. When prayer is practised, when love is preeminent, and when serving is prominent, God is glorified, the church is edified, and the world is notified that God is real. I'll give it to you again. When prayer is practised, when love is preeminent, and when serving is prominent, they're the responsibilities we've spoken about. God is glorified, the church is edified, 
and the world is notifying that God is real. What does all this mean for us? Here we go. Don't waste the rest of your time. How much time do you have left? Whatever it is, don't waste it. Invest it by doing God's will, not by indulging in sinful pleasures, but have a militant attitude towards your own sin. Be done with it. Do battle with it. Secondly, we need a militant attitude towards sin. Um, I think I've said enough about that one. The end is near. Are you ready? Are you sure? God wants you to be sure that you're ready. If you're not sure, come and talk to us. Because God wants you to have an assurance of salvation. And if you're not ready, then you need to get ready. Because the judge is ready. He's standing at the door, James says. It's next on God's agenda. When will that be? Nobody knows. Could it be tomorrow? Yep. We don't know. Be ready. Um, all believers are to pray, to love, to show hospitality and to serve. What can you do to devote more time to those things, to praying, loving, showing hospitality and serving? Is there some sin you need to cover up for somebody else? Some attitude you need to change towards them? Something you need to get over? Are you using your gifts? Is hospitality the area you need to work on? Which one of those things or some of those things do you need to take from this service today and say, yep, I'm going to lift my game in those areas? And then finally, out of all the 11 verses, which verse do you like best? And what one are you going to take with you into this week? Pick a verse. And may God speak to you and use you this week as you live in the shadow of eternity. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we pray that you would... Well, we thank you that you are patient with us and you're committed to growing us to be like the Lord Jesus. This passage contains lots of information, Lord, for us, lots of directions. I pray firstly that you might help us to renounce any attitude or every attitude that we have that doesn't want to ban sin from our life deliver us from compromising and from giving in too easily to it help us to have a militant attitude towards our sin and lord we acknowledge we've wasted enough time in our lives already so we ask you that you would help us to make the most of the rest of our time that it might count for you and for your purposes in these areas that we've spoken about. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.